Two and a Half Admins, episode 147. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Before we get started, your customary Clara article plug, Alan is FreeBSD or Linux, a choice without OS wars. Yeah, so it just gives a rundown of the two operating systems and helps you consider the pros and cons of each and, and which might make sense for your next project. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Millions of gigabyte motherboards were sold with a firmware backdoor. This was an article from Wired. The register said millions of gigabyte PC motherboards backdoored. What's the actual score? And we're a little bit less clickbaity, I suppose, with their headline. But either way, it's not great. It's just not quite as bad as it could have been. So researchers found this hidden code that was meant to be an innocuous tool to help keep the motherboard's firmware up to date, but found that it was implemented insecurely, potentially allowing that mechanism to be hijacked and used by someone else to install malware as the firmware. That's kind of what you're talking about when you talk about persistent malware, is if you can get it into the firmware, like flashed onto the EEPROM chips on the motherboard, that means even if you reformat the PC uh, and you do a fresh install of the OS and it boots up, and then it gets reinfected because the virus is coming from the firmware. This is essentially an abuse of all the things that you can do with Eufy that you were not able to do with older school BIOS. In theory, you know, this kind of firmware level hack has has always been a possibility. It's it's always been a problem to some degree. I, I shouldn't say to th- in theory. It's just the degree to which this has been a practical issue has always been limited by how low level the access that hacked firmware has to your system is. Your firmware is not really going to know like what operating system are you running or what file system beyond that, you know, yes, it can mess around with your drive controllers and it can do things to individual sectors, but it needs to understand a lot of things in order to do that in a way that's something beyond just obnoxious or crashing your system. Eufy, on the other hand, is a lot more capable than BIOS and ties in a lot more directly to the actual operating system of the machine. And in this particular case, Gigabyte's Eufy firmware, it's actually dropping executables on your C drive in System32. And making things worse, it's fetching these executable files that it drops into System32 and can cause your system to execute not over HTTPS, just over HTTP. So anybody who's a man in the middle can modify the firmware that you're downloading in clear text over the air with no authentication, no encryption. Yeah. And uh, while Gigabyte wouldn't respond to Wired's requests as they were writing the article... A few days after the public revelation about these firmware issues, Gigabyte announced an update to its firmware that includes enhanced verification of the code its updater program downloads to machines before installing it. But that doesn't sound like it actually implies HTTPS yet, but the code is cryptographically signed at least. And to be clear, just HTTPS really is not sufficient for this. No. It makes me very uneasy to just hear the idea of like, well, yeah, your operating system does what your operating system does, but your actual hardware will just update itself and do its own things and make its own decisions completely independent of the operating system layer. Don't like it. To some degree, I can understand auto-updating firmware might be better for all the machines run by people that don't even know what firmware is, let alone to update it. 
But yeah, I don't like the machine doing things I didn't ask it to do. Well, if you want auto-updating firmware on Windows machines, the way that you do that is you get your firmware into the Windows catalog where it can get applied by Windows Update, where Mm -hmm. people who at least have some knowledge of how the system works will expect to find things like that and be able to manage it and be able to deal with it. And you know there have already been inordinate problems with firmware drivers being you know installed in the Windows catalog and being automatically updated with Windows Update. That's not great either, but it's better than your motherboard literally just deciding to do its own downloads and drop executables and folders on your system. For sure. And, you know, the fact that they didn't have any kind of cryptographic code signing before this is definitely a problem. And even with that, we saw just a couple of weeks ago with the motherboard manufacturers reusing the same keys for thousands of models of stuff or what was it samsung phones a couple months ago found out that like every phone in the last eight years has used the same cryptographic key for signing and so once it was compromised it was like nope every phone ever is now vulnerable so even with cryptographic code signing and so on we don't trust these motherboard manufacturers to have done good key management on those signing keys So even with HTTPS and code signing, it's probably nowhere near enough. But they weren't doing any of those things at this point. They were doing HTTP downloads and not verifying them and just running them or dropping them in your System32 directory. It's really sad and laughable how the security of of this stuff is is handled. It's probably also worth pointing out, this is not just like a weird one-off thing. Like a gigabyte made one model of motherboard that did this thing and security researchers immediately found it. And, you know, if you have that one motherboard, it's a problem for you. No, Eclipsium, the research firm that originally brought this issue to light, they have a list of 271 affected motherboards. There's not a guarantee that those 271 are everything either. Yeah, and I did a control F for the motherboard that I set someone up with who is, I think, like 400 miles away from me. And uh, yeah, it's on the list. So I'm going to have to deal with that at some point in the next few days. Well, you just need to man in the middle of them and Trojan the new firmware to do the update that you wanted to do. And, you know, instant remote control, Joe. This makes your life easier. Yeah, yeah. Although it's worth pointing out that this is only theoretical. We've not actually seen any, or we don't have any confirmed cases of this being exploited in the wild. Well, sure. It's theoretical in the sense that it's theoretical if you leave your front door wide open, somebody might wind in and take your stuff. That's only theoretical. Nobody's taking your stuff yet. I think to your point, Joe, it's going to be really hard to cap this one off better than the register did in its own article. That article ends, should I take whoever thought it would be a good idea to allow Eufy firmware to automatically and silently install Windows services in the System32 folder off my Christmas card list? Yes. Should I panic? No. And that's a pretty good summation. Yeah. And like all firmware we see, we know that they do the minimum amount of work to take the old firmware and make it the new firmware for each motherboard. And that's why when we saw this kind of class break on this, it affects basically almost every motherboard Gigabyte made in a a time span since they introduced this feature, basically, because they do the minimum amount of work to have the same code base run on all these motherboards, which was part of supposed to be the, the, the point of Eufy for the, from the motherboard manufacturer side. But when they do it wrong, we see what happens. Now I'm sitting here wondering, hmm, what if maybe this is a good reason to just super glue shut your on motherboard NIC and just make sure you always install a PCIe NIC? Eufy is supposed to be able to use the PCIe NIC. Well, 
if that's the case, then I'm going to need to start looking for PCIe NICs that explicitly refuse to talk to Yuffie. Yeah, maybe there'll be a jumper or a configuration you do in the card's option ROM to stop it from offering a, a Yuffie option ROM for the NIC controller or whatever. Once you start bringing up possibilities like, well, if necessary, the motherboard can reach out to a PCI Express card to establish its network connection to do its dirty business, that raises questions. Is it possible then for two different PCIe peripherals to communicate to one another via Eufy, again, just completely bypassing the operating system? Like, do I need to worry about like a hard drive accessing my network card to download and execute something that I wasn't expecting? It's pretty unsettling. It is uh, getting to be kind of crazy, the number of computers that are inside your computer. Knowing that your hard drive has a RISC-V processor and your NIC's got an ARM processor on it. And, and, you know, even my keyboard has a 32-bit ARM processor in it. That part I don't find surprising or unnerving at all. It's just the idea that those processors of all those random things get to take priority over what I've told my system I want it to be doing with what's supposed to be the central processing unit Mm -hmm. that's supposed to be in control of the whole shebang. And I'm even willing to entertain arguments that there should be a security coprocessor that, you know, sits atop the main processor and looks for big problems and prevents them from happening, you know, which we do have in, in modern CPUs. But just the idea that any random peripheral can just ignore the operating system and enlist the entire system to do its bidding. Mm-mm. Don't like. Nope. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. This summer, HelloFresh is here to take the work out of eating well. Reach your goals with delicious calorie smart and protein smart lunch and dinner options plus new vegan recipes too. Need to make dinner in a hurry? Look for quick and easy recipes on the HelloFresh menu, including fast and fresh options, ready in just 15 minutes or less. Alan tried HelloFresh and was impressed by the recyclable, sustainable packaging and the fact that the meat was locally sourced. He liked all the recipes and really appreciated having the exact amount of each of the ingredients. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 25admin16 and use code 25admin16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com slash 25admin16 and code 25admin16. 90 plus orgs tell Slack to stop slacking when it comes to full encryption. This is a bunch of people marched on their offices to say, look, let's have some proper end-to-end encryption in Slack messages. It's not looking good for it happening anytime soon. Well, one question I have is how many of Slack's actual customers, those being the companies that pay Slack to do Slack, actually want people using their Slack to be able to talk to each other in a way that the company can't see? And then separately, whatever Slack wants to do with all the messages it's hoarding. I think I can answer that, Alan. Pretty much every single company wants Slack not to be able to see what its users are doing. Now, you can make the argument that what those companies want is they want a single key that the company owns that all its employees are using and the company can snoop, but absolutely none of the companies using Slack want Slack listening in on the conversations. End-to-end encryption is just not a new and super complex road that's never been traveled before. And you have to start asking questions at this point when a company is just like, nah, don't want to do it. Well, okay, Why not? It's not because it's too hard. 
So why don't you want to give up the ability to listen to all the conversations happening on your platform? There are maybe some technical limitations where it'd be more complicated, especially when you have something like a channel and you're adding someone to the channel and they're able to see the history. That would require re-encrypting the entire history to an additional key. And when you start having hundreds of keys, it could get a bit unwieldy. They'd have to do a different way of dealing with that. To answer that problem, I mean, one obvious way to deal with that is, you know, if you create a large space, you simply have a key for that space that belongs to the host for that space. And everybody uses that one. At that point, the host, you know, can see all of the messages, but the host already could. So, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. really a concern. It's still quite easy to keep the contents of all of it out of Slack's hands. So again, I have to ask the question, why doesn't Slack want to do it? And I cannot come up with any answers that aren't spelled data mining. But I don't get that because Slack's business model is pretty straightforward. Give you just enough to get you hooked and then charge you a fortune when you need the, the history of more than a few months. It's a very straightforward business model that presumably does quite well. I mean, Alan, how much are you paying per seat? Uh, whatever the regular price is, less than $10 a person, but with a lot of people, that adds up. Yeah, exactly. Like if you've got an organization of a few hundred people that's using the free version, and then it's like, no, we, we need to just pay, we want the history and all the rest of it, then suddenly that's a lot of money each month going to Slack. So why would they need to have the data mining stuff? Let me ask you a question real quick, Joe. The typical large corporation in the year AD 2023, if you tell them you're making $5 right now, but you could be making $5.10, how many modern corporations are going to say, you know, $5 is good enough for us. We don't need that extra dime. Nah, (laughs) they'll sell your grandmother to get that dime, man. Yeah, but I don't think it's a dime. I'm saying it's like point something of a cent. That does not change Jim's argument. It really does not. Right. It doesn't change it from a bottom line point of view, but it changes it from a reputational point of view. Like, why are we talking about this? They could avoid us talking about this and the bad publicity. And it's not just us, obviously, it's everyone else who's talking about it. Yeah. And Facebook could not suck if it didn't want to. And Twitter could not suck if it didn't want to. And, you know, every other company you can think of could not suck if it didn't want to. But they don't care about that. They care about making the money. And unless and until, well, at this point, it seems pretty clear that unless and until Slack is seriously concerned that, you know, these people that are protesting will actually stop using the service, well, they're unhappy. But if unhappy means giving me money every month, then fuck them. I want the dime. What's interesting here is the specific groups they're they're talking about in this protest are worried about features of Slack that sound like they're not using Slack in the typical way either. Like they want to... blocking and reporting features to report users and so on. That's not a typical thing you would expect for a corporate user of Slack to want to report people. It's like, no, we have a HR department or something if somebody's harassing you at work. But they're worried about the privacy and security and harassment of protesters and, and, and volunteers working on these community things. And it's like, well, maybe Slack's not the right platform for them. I understand why Slack is the platform they picked to start with, but Maybe they'd be better off actually going somewhere to a different platform rather than trying to lobby Slack that they're worried that their rally organizers are going to be targeted by police or people that are just going to harass them. Well, the thing is that Slack used to just be individual servers, right? But then I think it was about a year ago, they enabled a feature where people on different 
instances or servers, whatever you want to call it, could DM each other. So Slack Connect is one of the features you have to have the pay version to use and it allows, for example, my company has a shared channel with a customer and then a different shared channel with a different customer. And it's much nicer than A, having a guest account on their Slack, which meant switching instances every time you wanted to get a message and so on. Yeah. But you have to like opt in and you have to, both sides have to have a paid version of Slack for this. So I, again, it isn't the type of thing where you're going to get random, randos off the internet harassing rally organizers. So it sounds like it's a bunch of free open slacks they're trying to use to organize protest rallies and so on. And I understand they have legitimate concerns about the fact that Slack doesn't have blocking and, and harassment reporting features and so on. But at some point, maybe the best thing to do is to use something other than Slack rather than expecting Slack to change what they're doing because I don't expect them to. But I do agree with Jim that the fact that they're so resistant to implementing at least something that looks like end-to-end encryption is very telling as well. Which AI bot are they trying to train off everybody's Slack messages? <laughs> there it is. There's the other thing besides, well, I guess technically that's still data mining, but yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. At some point, a more expensive version of Slack will let me have a bot trained on everything ever said in my company Slack, and maybe we'll actually be able to answer people's questions and stuff based on previous messages. Slack pilot. Yeah. Oh no, that just sounds like a nightmare. You probably think that sounds all right, Alan, eh? No, I wouldn't actually want that because there's too much sensitive stuff that I, I wouldn't want the bots spouting back out. And I'd want more control over how it used the data than it's currently possible to have with AI. Any kind of large language model learning stuff, nobody's able to control how it uses the information or which it does and doesn't use and what conclusions it does and doesn't draw. And so based on the fact that it's not something AI can actually do, I wouldn't want it to feed all that data into an AI. Yeah, but the AI is just going to answer every question and every problem with ZFS and data sets and replication. I think Joe just said he's going to replace you with a very small shell script, Alan. <laughs> it does kind of sound like he said that. To your thing about eventually being able to ask, you know, uh, Slack to provide you with the AI model trained on your conversations or whatever. I think the other thing that goes with that is you'll also be offered the chance to spend more money to not have it train mm. on your stuff. But it's still going to cost more and they're not going to offer you that option to spend a little bit more to not do that until they've actually got the first model trained and it's down to just retraining rather than building the thing. Well, that'd be fine, though. They can just remove your data from the training set really easily, right? Yeah, that's exactly how that works. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com.
AMD's Epic ROM chips crash after 1,044 days of uptime. This is from Tom's Hardware. So am I the only one getting big Windows 95 vibes here? <laughs> nope, it's the same bug. Uh, it's, you know, a 32-bit rollover, and then it just depends on the scale that you're using, whether you're tacking like milliseconds or tens of milliseconds or hundreds of milliseconds, whether what the time scale ends up being, right? Uh, with the certain Boeing engines, it's like 23 days of uptime gets to this same number because of the way it counts in hundreds of milliseconds or whatever. So it hits the same thing much quicker and it has to be rebooted. Otherwise, it causes the same problem. It's all the same timer bugs over and over and over again. So the core fails to exit the CC6 sleep state, but AMD says the timing of the failure could vary based on the spread spectrum and the reference clock frequency. So it could be between 10.42 and 10.44.5 days, basically, <laughs> plus or minus 12 hours. So the TSC ticks at 2,800 megahertz times 10 to the power of 6 times the 1,042 days works out to roughly 0x38 followed by so many zeros that it can't possibly be a coincidence. Now, while the long time before the core crashing bug is interesting, the question that really matters is what the fact that security updates and maintenance usually would happen at a much shorter interval. So, you know, until we get to this 1044 days, which is almost three years, you probably have rebooted before that, right? But one also wonders if a, a warm reboot is enough to reset this counter. It sounds like it is. But the, the question I have is who is keeping their system up for the best part of three years? Like, I understand about keeping services up and websites up, but surely you have to reboot for kernel updates and stuff. I know live patch is a thing these days, but uh, Jim, you're making faces like I'm mad. There's also lots of people that don't patch. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. And Joe, that's why I was making the faces. Just what Alan just said, there are lots of people who don't patch. There are lots of hobbyists and let's just say very backwater admins who never got the message that, you know, chasing super long uptimes is no longer the hot thing. And they're still out there bragging about, you know, there are thousands of days of uptime. On top of that, you've got live patch, which makes that kind of thing a little bit more understandable. Although I will say that even then, if you have set your stack up such that there is a system that you cannot reboot more frequently than every three years, you have set that stack up wrong. Mm -hmm. And live patch or no live patch, if you're not rebooting more frequently than that, you're also doing it wrong because live patch or no live patch, you don't know that your system is actually going to come back up if you don't try rebooting it. Yeah, we talked about that with the, the Reddit Kubernetes situation. Yeah. Like, if you never test it, how do you know? So when there was a, a similar undefined behavior in C that was exposed by a, an upgrade of Clang and FreeBSD, we purposely set the counter so at boot, it's set to 15 minutes from when it would have caused the crash. So in the future, if that kind of problem crops up again, you notice it because your system crashes after 15 minutes instead of only after hundreds of days or about 10 times faster than the 1044 days is, but in seconds so that you can detect these kind of things. And I do wonder if some kind of fuzz testing like that is how this was found because I don't think there's any Epic Rome chips that have been up for three years yet. And certainly not enough where they hung and somebody was able to figure out that it wasn't just one of the other random hangs that might happen. 
Although I admit I've not seen machines randomly hang much at all in the last 15 years. I guess we've got better at software. This reminds me a lot of a Ryzen bug that I experienced personally when uh, I built my first Ryzen workstation. Uh, it was a Ryzen 7 uh, 2700, I think. So that generation of Ryzen had an issue with the uh, the onboard hardware random number generator. And what would happen is if you asked for the hardware random number generator for a random number, it would give you the finest artisanal all zeros every time completely randomly. And there were several applications that I encountered that relied on the HWRNG all by itself. And a couple of them would even look for, uh, you know, I don't like this number or I've gotten this number before, so I don't want to use that one. So, you know, they would just keep asking for another one. And the net effect would be that, you know, I would see this impacting by one core after another on my CPU would just effectively drop off the map. And I couldn't reclaim those cores without rebooting the whole machine. So when I, when I see this about, you know, the impact of this bug is that one of your cores goes away and doesn't come back. I'm like, ah, that again. Yeah, luckily it sounds like with this errata that maybe it'll be fixable with just a firmware update. Tom's Harbor has a random anecdote here. This is some erratas always remain even in shipping chips. For instance, Intel's 8th gen CPUs have 150 known erratas that still remain, even though the chips were launched in 2017. And AMD's currently has 39 erratas remain on, although it doesn't say which generation of AMD chips that is. This is a won't fix. Their advice on this is, you know, reboot your freaking system. And uh, if you absolutely re refuse to reboot your system more than once every three years, well, I guess disable CC6 sleep then and you won't have that problem. Speaking of interesting anecdotes, Tom's pointed out that if you want to beat the current uptime record, you're going to have to beat Voyager 2, which has been up and running for 48 years and it's still going. Yep, that's uh, 16,735 days as of last count. And they never rebooted that then. Well, nope. it's in space. If they reboot it, it might not come back up. That seems like they didn't design it properly then, according to Jim's theory. You know, if they built it today, I would say yes, they, they built that wrong. And, you know, they should have, you know, something in triplicate and, you know, quorums or, you know, what have you. They sh there should be a way to reboot all the things and feel safe about it. But again, given the fact that it has been running for 48 years, I have nothing bad to say about the engineers that designed it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. 
And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And like I said last time, we're entering silly season, so we could probably do with some more of your questions. Do send them in, and the shorter the better. An anonymous person writes to us, We all know that ZFS fully justifies its description of the last word in file systems, but what Linux file systems do you recommend for those of us who can't use ZFS for one reason or another? What are your opinions on XFS by itself, and when compared to other conservative file systems like ext4? I like that it does dynamic inode allocation and has reflinks, but the old net is still full of anecdotes about how it truncated files on power loss back in 2002, which seems to have been fixed decades ago, but these things tend to keep on going. No shrinking support, obviously, but it looks like a bad idea in general. Pharonix reports significant performance gains on modern SSDs, but their methodology is often criticized by file system developers. They also test freshly created file systems that don't show how it will behave a few years down the line. So XFS enjoys a pretty strong kind of cult level support, in my opinion, amongst uh, you know a lot of admins that I, I don't think is really fully justified. I have never deliberately used XFS in production myself, but I have tested XFS versus ZFS and EXT4 pretty thoroughly. And um, performance-wise, EXT4 tends to outperform XFS. It also doesn't have you know a couple of the drawbacks mentioned, but I don't think that those are really all that relevant. I mean, you can't shrink a file system. Well, okay, great. Who the hell needs to do that and how frequently? I mean, yes, somebody will always pop up when you ask that question and say, well, I needed to do it once, you know, back in 1998 when, but it's, it's just not a big concern. Yeah. Whoever needs less storage. Exactly. Now, this is one thing when we're talking about like, you know, home or small business scale systems. On the other hand, if you're talking about large storage, if you're talking about, you know, well over a hundred terabytes worth of storage in an array, well, you should definitely use ZFS for that. But if you can't, that becomes the point at which you should really start considering XFS over EXT4. EXT4 is, in my opinion, probably the most heavily tested and well-understood general-purpose file system at normal consumer scales on the planet. And you really can't get away from that. But uh, once you start getting into enterprise-scale storage, that's where XFS has actually had a lot more battle testing than EXT4 has. And the tooling around XFS is also designed for uh, you know, larger-scale systems. There are a lot of issues with EXT4 where, in theory, the file system itself can support very large volumes or very large files. But then you discover that you know, the, the command line tools that you use to interact with them, they don't support very large volumes or very large files. So you have problems until those get updated. Well, XFS has largely flourished in the enterprise world, so those very big scale problems have been ironed out. But if you're not operating at that very big scale, no, I definitely wouldn't advise ditching EXT4. Yeah, and as to your notes about truncated files during power loss and so on, any overriding file system is never going to be able to save you properly from what might happen when the power goes out unexpectedly. Unlike a copy on write, eh, Alan? Yes, any copy on write file system is going to be able to do better there because you don't have the risk of what's called a shorn write, right? If you're saving a file over top of an older version of that file and you're halfway through that save when the power goes out, what you're going to have on disk is half of the new file and then half of the old file, and that might not be valid. 
on top of the fact that maybe the metadata wasn't right and we think the file's not the right size anymore. It's now the truncated size or or whatever. That's a whole different set of issues. And maybe the file systems can, by making sure they write out the metadata first and then the data and so on, try to deal with that. But they're never going to be able to protect you from the fact that an atomic operation didn't complete. And unless they're copy and write, they're not going to be able to roll it back. So most of those issues are not really technically solvable. And so corruption in general is still going to be a risk when you have power loss. So what you're saying, Alan, is if you can't use ZFS, use ButterFS. What I'm saying is if you can't use ZFS, solve the problem that means you can't use ZFS. <laughs> because if the problem is licensing, it's, it's solvable. Jim's face, man. If only you could see it, dear listener. Remember, gentle listener, the show is 2.5 admins, and uh, Joe is no more than 0.1 of that. <laughs> 0.05 is all I'm claiming. I'm generous. Ask my wife. <laughs> right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.